It's Thursday, May 16th. Welcome to Skim This. We're breaking down the most complex stories of the day and giving you the context on why they matter. Today, we're diving into the abortion debate and the slew of new bills that are being signed across the country. We'll connect the dots on why it's all about how you define a person. Then, what a new score being added to the SAT could mean for low-income kids. We'll explain. And finally, the best cup of coffee money can buy. We're here to make your Thursday smarter. Let's skim this. Today's episode is brought to you by Delta. Delta flies to 300 cities around the world. Big number. Big news day. Let's dive in. The most complicated story today is about abortion. States have been passing really restrictive abortion laws left and right lately. This morning, Missouri State Senate passed a bill banning abortions after eight weeks of pregnancy. Last week, Georgia's governor signed a law banning abortions after about six weeks, before many women know they're pregnant. And on Wednesday, Alabama's governor signed the most restrictive law of them all, banning almost all abortions. According to the law, doctors in Alabama could be sentenced up to 99 years in jail for performing them. To be clear, none of these bills or laws have taken effect yet, and groups like Planned Parenthood and the ACLU are taking these states to court because they directly violate Roe v. Wade. That's the landmark 1973 decision that said states can't prohibit a woman from having an abortion up to the point that the fetus can live outside the uterus. That's around the 24-week mark which means judges might delay the laws from taking effect until it's decided whether these laws are even legal at the Supreme Court. Anti-abortion groups are saying, that's the point. Here's one of the sponsors of Alabama's bill, State Senator Clyde Chambliss. What this bill is designed to do is to go to the Supreme Court and challenge that particular precedence that said in 1973, that abortion is illegal, on demand, essentially anytime, anywhere, for any reason. Back then, it was about a woman's rights. The new thing here is that the people writing the laws in Georgia and Alabama are saying that embryos are people and have the same rights as a born child. They call it personhood. And by doing that, they're responding to a call put out way back when Roe v. Wade was first decided. So today, we're going to get into what this personhood argument is, why the debate over personhood gets really complicated, and where it could lead. Okay, so in Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decided that abortion is legal up to a certain point in development, and that a woman's right to choose whether or not to have an abortion is protected by the Constitution's 14th Amendment, which grants equal protection under the law. But in that decision, Justice Harry Blackmun added a side note. He basically said, if you prove that a fetus is a person, then its right to life is also guaranteed by the 14th Amendment, which would make Roe v. Wade go away. Ever since, anti-abortion activists have looked for ways to establish that in court, which is why you've seen a number of so-called heartbeat bills passed in recent years, bills that ban abortions after six weeks, when doctors can detect a fetal heartbeat. Some activists say the heartbeat is when a fetus should be given full legal personhood rights, or they've pushed for that personhood marker to come even earlier, Anti-abortion activists in Mississippi tried to get an initiative passed in 2011, saying that fertilized eggs are people too. Alabama lawmakers also face questions over whether their law gives fertilized eggs legal rights. Okay, this is where it gets really complicated, even for people who want kids. 
Doctors say pregnancy doesn't officially start until a fertilized egg is implanted in the uterus. Critics say giving personhood to fertilized eggs could have a ripple effect. It could put things like in vitro fertilization at risk. That's when doctors combine an egg with sperm outside of the body to create embryos, often in cases where couples are having trouble conceiving. Doctors typically create a bunch of embryos because sometimes the process doesn't work. Critics say laws giving fertilized eggs full rights could make IVF illegal. And there's something else that happens with IVF. It's called multi-fetal pregnancy reduction. Sometimes a mom can end up pregnant with multiple fetuses, which can be risky. In order to decrease the risks, doctors will reduce the number of fetuses in the pregnancy. Not everybody can be Optimum. Georgia's new law says that a fertilized egg in utero at any stage of development is a person. In Alabama, one of those law sponsors say that fertilized eggs in the lab wouldn't apply to their new law. But it's not clear if they're thinking about procedures like multi-fetal pregnancy reduction there. But legal experts say if the Supreme Court was going to overturn Roe v. Wade, it's not clear it would do it on the basis of personhood. Experts say the argument for personhood relies on the idea of natural law, moral principles that have been in place since well before the Constitution. But the Constitution doesn't say fetuses have rights too. And many conservative jurists tend to be originalists, meaning they like to stick to the text. So what's the skim? This is a controversial issue that's not going away. And it's a lot more complicated than just pro-life or pro-choice. If these personhood cases make it to the Supreme Court, they're going to have to answer a lot of questions beyond just abortion rights. Like, does it change when people get Social Security? Or how taxes work? Georgia's law would actually allow parents to claim an embryo with a detected heartbeat as a tax dependent. And other states like New York are passing laws to protect the right to an abortion, which as of right now is still legal in all 50 states. While anti-abortion proponents are testing the limits, standardized tests in the U.S. are getting more personalized. That story's next. Dishes in the sink. Laundry all over the floor. And your roommate wants to go on an ice cream run. You've got a choice to make. And you're probably going to choose sprinkles. But you're not the only one. Delta flies to 300 cities around the world. That's 300 cities where people would rather grab dessert with a friend, just like you. And here's the thing. Delta doesn't just fly to 300 cities to bring us together. They do it to show us we weren't that far apart to begin with. Delta, keep climbing. If you took the SAT college exam recently, or know someone who did, you know it has a couple of parts. There's the reading and the writing score, the math score, and sometimes an essay. Well, the college board announced today that there's going to be a new score, the adversity score. But this one is actually not a test at all. It's supposed to give colleges more context about a student's background and the different kinds of hardships they may have had to face. Here's how it works. The college board is going to look at 15 factors, including where a student lives, their family, and their high school. Stuff like the crime rate in their neighborhood, their parents' education level, and the proportion of kids who get free lunch at their school. The board will get that information from public records like census data, and their own proprietary sources. Then, the college board will calculate a score for each student, from 1 to 100. Low numbers show more privilege, and high numbers show more hardship. So, what's the goal here? Income and race have been shown to play a huge role in SAT outcomes. 
students from wealthy families tend to score higher, and Asian and white students tend to score better than Black and Hispanic students. The College Board says it hopes the adversity score will help balance out those gaps. The program has been in beta testing for a few years. 50 schools use it last year, and some schools have already seen a difference. Florida State says it increased the proportion of non-white students who enrolled in the freshman class by 5%. But not everybody's excited about it. The news started trending on Twitter, and people criticized the lack of transparency in how the score is calculated. They want to know what the proprietary sources are and how the college board weighs each factor. They also don't think it's fair that students can't see their score. And it's part of a bigger issue about affirmative action, the policy of favoring groups who have been discriminated against in the past. This is mostly about race. Schools across the country are facing lawsuits for their admissions practices. The University of North Carolina has been accused of disproportionately admitting Black, Hispanic, and Native American applicants. Same thing happened at the University of Texas at Austin a few years back. And that case went to the Supreme Court. Those cases and this adversity score are part of a larger effort to diversify student populations in college. But this new adversity score could also help some minority students who tend to do really well on the SAT. Asian Americans. Harvard has been accused of setting a quota for Asian American students because so many have the grades and scores to get in. But at one of the top public schools in New York, Asian American students make up 75% of the student population and 90% of the kids who get free and reduced lunch. That's one of the things the College Board is looking at. There aren't any affirmative action cases in front of the Supreme Court right now. But a lot of people think college affirmative action policies could be banned soon given the current makeup of the court. If that does happen, this score could give colleges a way to make sure their schools represent students with a range of experiences and backgrounds. It's Women's Health Week, and there's some exciting news about breast cancer. A new study has found that women who followed a low-fat diet had a lower risk of dying from the disease. This is actually a follow-up from a first study of 50,000 women two decades ago that looked into the impact of eating a lower-fat diet with lots of grains, fruits, and veggies. At the end of that trial, researchers found that the diet didn't do much to lower the risk of getting breast cancer. In this new study, they checked back in with those women and saw that the ones who were still following those diets were actually less likely to die if they did get breast cancer. There are a couple of caveats. It's unclear whether the benefit is coming from the lower-fat diet or the additional fruits and veggies. Second, it took 20 years for the health benefits to show up. For more on Women's Health Week, check us out on social at The Skin. Before we go today, we've got a fun fact coming to you from a cafe in California. Clatch Coffee has what's being called the world's most expensive cup of coffee on the menu. It's a whopping $75 a cup. It's made from coffee beans from Panama, but with origins in Ethiopia. The brew is called Alida Geisha 803. It won the best of Panama coffee competition, like the Oscars for coffee. They only sold 100 pounds at auction for a record $803 a pound. Clatch Coffee was the only company in the U.S. to get some. They bought 10 pounds, which means they'll only be able to make about 80 cups. So, a regular morning at the office, or $6,000.
And that's all for Skim This. Thanks for listening and make sure you subscribe and leave a review. For more Skim, you can check out our premium content by downloading our app or get our free morning newsletter by subscribing at theskim.com. It's everything you need to know to start your day right in your inbox.